listening to the Andy Greenwald Podcast. Hello, my name is Andy Greenwald. This is my podcast. My podcast is now part of the Watch podcast feed, and you can find it on iTunes, on SoundCloud, you can find it on Google Play, and I recommend it that you do. I don't know if you guys have noticed, but the Ringer Podcast Network is expanding in all sorts of directions. The Watch, the show I do with my pal Chris Ryan, is available in its own feed, but you can also find Keep It at 1600 with John Favreau and Dan Pfeiffer. You can find the Ringer NBA show, the Ringer NFL show, and don't forget about our old pals at Channel 33, where you can find all sorts of shows like uh, Jam Session with my good friends Juliet Littman and Amanda Dobbins. Uh, big show today. I'm very excited about it. Um, a friend of the podcast, someone who's been on multiple times, and the co-creator and executive producer of one of my favorite shows, Cinemax's Banshee, is here. That's the novelist, Jonathan Tropper. And uh, Banshee, I've written about it before. It's been on my top ten list at Grandland. It is an incredibly violent, incredibly fun, incredibly smart, and full of heart and pulp drama. It ends after four seasons this Friday, May 20th, 10 p.m. Eastern. I'm very, I'm very upset about it. Um, had Jonathan come in and we talked about uh, his decision to end the show, how he went about ending the show, and some other things, including how to find people who look like Amish gangsters when you're in Pittsburgh. Actually, that sounds like it wouldn't be that hard. Um, anyway, it was a very good conversation, and I definitely recommend people check out Banshee if they haven't already. We're going to get right into it. Uh, remember, you can subscribe to The Watch at iTunes, Google Play, and SoundCloud. I want to thank the Scottish band Churches. That's Churches with a V for my theme music. And let's get right into it. Let's get into my conversation with Jonathan Tropper. What were you talking to Colin Farrell about? Uh, I was talking to Colin Farrell about The Lobster. Oh, I want to see that. It's really good. Are you keeping headphones? I'll do headphones if you want headphones. Let's do headphones. Let's get the whole experience. Okay, some people don't like them. But yeah. You know, right. Colin Farrell was our initial model for Lucas Hood. Wait, really? Yeah. Oh, God, he would have been amazing. I know. And it was at a moment just before his career kind of re like I was like, maybe we could get him because he's been in a real tailspin. But then he did a few like low-budget movies that did well, like Fright Night and something yeah. else, and he just came back as a movie star, and that was it. But, but there was a moment when... There was a moment when... When his, your dream list had a Venn diagram intersection with who was potentially available for... Well, he's also, he's just the model we used when we were pitching it. See, we're, this is, we're going, by the way, this is officially the podcast now. Oh, no. But no, but this is really? important. But because, you didn't do the thing. No, I'll do it after. And I'll say, what a great conversation we had. <laughs> this is, the, I marinate now. We go right into it. That's, That's an, the only difference technique. from the last time we did this. Um, I love Colin Farrell, and I told him that to his face, and uh, he, he was very generous about it, but... Mm-hmm. As a person on your side of the ball, a writer, creator, why is he appealing? Because I feel like that's an important. It, it could because, give insight into your mindset. In no, general. it's just because you know every you know in, in a lot of the roles he's done, he's he's always got this sort of you know this kind of seething anger beneath the surface. Like you know he could explode at any moment. Yeah, he's got a real irreverence, a real rebellious streak, and he's you know he's very good looking without being a pretty boy at all. And he just, you know, he we just he was just the model that from from day one. That was what I, what I was picturing when we were pitching Lucas Hood. You know, we've talked before about about Banshee and this and and on podcasts. And the thing that I, I always bring up is, I think the thing that got me completely to buy in early on was that the character of Lucas Hood and, and Anthony Starr's performance was really based on this idea of someone who's going to keep getting punched, but will smile and shake it off and, and punch back. Basically, there's an irreverence at the heart of it. It was essential to buying into this very violent world. And so it's, it, I've always found it fascinating that that was part of it from the beginning, that you knew that 
was necessary yeah. to make it work. Yeah, and it, w- it was him, first of all, like having that person who is not quite winking at the audience, but his very demeanor suggests that he understands the universe he lives in. Right. And then the other half of that, you know, was the audience surrogate in Brock, who would occasionally ask the questions the audience was thinking or roll his eyes the way the audience would roll his eyes, like, you know, just just sort of put voice to some of the absurdity. Well, we're going to talk about how, you know, the, the, the length and breadth of Banshee, one of my favorite shows the last few years. Um, we're going to talk about how and why it's ending uh, after the series finale. The season finale of the fourth season is also the series finale. It airs yep. this Friday night um, on Cinemax. And uh, we're going to talk about all that. But you mentioned something that led me, that I actually had in my notes, which was, at what point did you realize Banshee was actually a story about Brock Lotus' frustrated lawman? Because that was been my main takeaway from season four. I realized, oh, wait, this guy's secretly the star, and he's just been well, having the worst four. four years ever. He certainly, in season four, he becomes the center of the show. But secretly, he was there all along, just, yeah. getting, just getting shit on, yeah. and now... Well, you know, we our initial plan was to kill him in the finale of the first season. Oh, my God. He is the, he's the Jesse from Breaking Bad of Banshee. <laughs> he, uh... Yeah, when we initially cast him, it was a one-year contract, and the plan was uh, that he was going to die in the finale after going to Oregon and finding out that, uh, you know, something really was fishy, and this Lucas Hood isn't the real Lucas Hood, and then he was going to come back and get swept up into the rabbit shootout and get killed before he could arrest him. Wow, and so so Matt Servito, who played the part... Yeah. All four years. Knew that. He signed on for a yeah, one-year Yeah, he knew he was there bid. for one year. And then around episode, when we were in production already on episode six or something, um, we sat him down and asked him if he wouldn't mind staying. And um, it was a combination of factors. It was, first of all, I, you know, I began to have a sneaking suspicion that Lucas needed a Brock. To, um, to keep him in check or to yeah, keep him. Yeah, you know, Jordan needs Pippin. Kirk <laughs> needs Spock. Lucas needs Brock. And... Um, and also, we just loved Matt Servito. We didn't want to. We didn't want to fire him. We didn't want to lose him. So we got him to stay, and then we just had to come up with a good arc over the next bunch of seasons for Brock. I think it's very. I, he's he's terrific, and I think it's harder than people realize to play a character who is essentially uh, incredulous the entire time, a character who doesn't know the truth and not come off as a fool, to come off tough and strong as the character does. It's a very fine line to play. Yeah. And, uh, he gets he gets he gets us some hero moments in season four. Yeah, and I think Servito's always kind of played it with this eye roll as like some hidden force (parentheses the writers) are not <laughs> letting me pull back the curtain, right? But I could pull it back at any minute and show what I know in my heart, which is this is all bullshit. Well, one of the and, important things for all <coughs> residents of Banshee is they all seem to know what universe they exist in. I mean, right. you, you reference that in the creation of the character, but yeah. any any passersby on the street. If they go by a massive um, fist fight on Main Street in the middle of the day, that's just Banshee, right? Like they they yeah, all understand you know, a certain level of crookedness. If, if you live in if you live life. in the cartoon world, you don't wonder how the mallet got behind your back. Right. You know when you pull it out. It's just there are certain laws of the universe that govern it. I have to say, it was this season that I started to think of Banshee as like the Manhattan as Manhattan is in the Marvel universe, where like why would anyone live there when space right. gods keep crashing through wormholes and Norse, you know, thunder gods are fighting them yeah. in the middle of Times Square. It's, what? A, it's, what? On, it's on the Hellmouth. It's Wait, on, it's it on is the on Pennsylvania Hellmouth. It is on a Pennsylvania Hellmouth, which I thought was, you know, traffic on the Schuylkill Expressway growing up, but no, it's located farther west. Yeah. Um did you ever were you ever tempted to tell a side story of just like the town optometrist? Like what their life is like? We, we, you know, we've had so many ideas. You know, we have so little real estate with 10 episodes yeah. a season. And, and, eight and then eight in the final season. Like, 
we've had whole Brock episodes. We've had whole Burton episodes. We've had whole, you know, we had this vision once that, you know, uh, you see Burton leave Proctor's house and get in the car and drive off somewhere and stop at a store and pick up some milk and go home to a beautiful wife and two kids. And like, (laughs) we played all these games. We had a million scenarios. And in the end, when you're telling 10 concentrated episodes, everything falls away, including, you know, including stuff that really would have been germane to the story. We just can't get it done in 10 episodes. What's interesting about that is, and I I find this in talking to many people who, who create TV for a living, is that you know so much more about these characters in the world than the audience ever can or will know because, as you said, there's no real estate for it. But right. those conversations in the room or, you know, just among yourself, I mean, you and the, your, the people that you're creating the show with, they inform what you do, right? So you know, you have a sense of what Burton does after hours, for example. Yeah, well, well, Burton, we've always kept a real mystery. We've had a lot of scenarios, but we've right. never landed on anything. And And I remember, you know, even early on, Matt Roush, who plays Burton, used to ask me in the first season, well, you know, What's Burton's sex life like? And what's this? What's that? And, I, and, you know, I just look at him and say, you know, I don't know. You know, he's just, you know, just all you have to know is that, like, in a town full of really screwed up, dangerous people, Burton is the most screwed up and dangerous of them all. That's a good note. And, and you know, but, yeah, but, you know, I think Roush really worked to find the heart of Burton. And, and somewhere in there you do see this really hurt little boy who's trying to please his his father figure, et cetera. He's and, a puppy dog, an attack yeah. dog, but a puppy dog. Yeah. Yeah, he, he did get, there was a, the way that he took off the glasses uh, in season four before his big uh, 360 fight scene, he, uh, there's a sadness to his face, you know. Or, like or a resignation. There's a resignation, yeah. like here we go again, that I thought was yeah. quite. And that all comes from him. I don't know that we've ever given him much of a note in terms of how to play Burton, I remember when he, when we watched his taped video when we were first casting the role and, you know, we had, you know, he was reading this scene that everybody reads when he first, probably the first scene where he takes off his glasses. And um, I think it's it's the scene that ended up in episode three where he confronts the manager of the kickboxer. He wants Proctor's money back because the fight's not going to happen. Right. And, <clears throat> and then he sort of takes off his glasses and walks into the trailer. And uh, even in his um, audition, he sort of took off these glasses and his eyes just went dead. And we just looked at that like, oh, that's the guy. Like, you know, we had not even like envisioned it the way he did it. And then that became sort of well, the your, guy. Your casting process through these four seasons of Banshee had to have been relatively unique because you needed to cast people who were physically plausible or physically charismatic in addition to being able to deliver lines of dialogue, which is not something that's relevant necessarily on, you know, uh, a network procedural. You mean athletic? You mean like able to do stunts and fights? Well, definitely mean? partly that. But I also mean like 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 Matt Roush. Like I've, I've I've met him. He seems like I wouldn't pick him out of the crowd as a um, you know kickboxing psychopath necessarily. Right. Necessarily, maybe after a few drinks. But when he's on screen, there is a physical charisma to his presence and to his performance that is not dependent on the dialogue. You believe that there's something coiled. Well, for could, him, yeah. The irony there is, of course, you know, he's a Shakespearean actor. Right. That guy can rattle off dialogue better than anyone, and I think over four seasons he's had like 15 lines. Right. But, um, yeah, I mean, casting in general for us was always arduous, and it's always difficult, and I think it takes us a long time because we're doing the opposite of central casting. We're always trying to find somebody really... Um, really different and really unexpected. And in our earlier season, it was really hard, like before the show was on the air and even after our first season, because I think actors were wary of Cinemax. And um, by the end of season two, once Banshee had really made a name for himself, suddenly we could get, you know, 
major New York actors. We can get Broadway actors. You know, we even had a a one hour conversation with Wesley Snipes at one point to come in and play uh, Colonel Stowe. And uh, should should we know, do a one hour conversation about yeah. that one hour conversation? No, right no, now? it was just it was he it was very professional. He was incredibly gracious, and it's just uh, you know he was very busy. He's very in demand, and. Yeah. Um, but you know, we got to that point where we could talk to to actors with names, and and we really didn't want very many actors with names because I think it would take you out of Banshee if you mm-hmm. if you knew the name of you know if it was a movie star or a TV star. So we were careful about that. But a casting became we got a much bigger pool after the second season of of people who would audition for the show, and you know, and then it's just about finding that person who seems to look right in Banshee. Well, then the the double challenge also is that. Because of the nature of the show, you you constantly have to restock the larder because yeah. some characters don't make it very far or don't make it or they fall after a while. And yeah. I, I was doing you know preparing to talk to you. I, I realized I had never considered who the actor who played Bunker. I think he's terrific on the show, and it's Tom such a Pelfrey. unique part. But Tom Pelfrey. So I googled Tom Pelfrey, and I realized. He's had this career as a leading man on soap operas and things, and and, he, and he's a Broadway star and, as well, and, and been on Broadway. Yeah. And you know, if you had told me that he had that he his life actually was American History X, I would have believed you because I had not seen that type of character and that type of performance before. Yeah. Oh, well, now you're talking about Chris Coy. No, I'm talking about, about well about. Oh, you're talking Pel- about Tom Pelfrey. Yeah, oh, Tom yeah. Pelfrey. Chris Coy. When yeah. I googled him, I see that he was in like yeah. a. He, he played a cannibal on Walking Dead, and he was uh, in a hostile movie. So I feel like he's used to a certain level of. Yeah, uh, Chris is super intense, and but Tom comes from like a really strong acting background. Right. Tom has a. I'm, I don't think I'm allowed to say what Tom's doing next, but it's big, and uh, you know everyone's going to be seeing him pretty soon. Um, I don't think it's. I'm supposed to talk about it, but uh, yeah, no, it's it's you know, and we we've gotten luckier more often than not. Like you never know when you cast someone. We've we've had one or two where. You know, after casting them, we realized it wasn't what we had hoped for, and so the story arc had to get greatly uh, truncated so that we could get them off the screen. But for the most part, we've been uh, we've been lucky. Tom Pelfrey and Iron Fist is that what we can't talk about? Oh, is it online it's already? On, yeah, yeah. It was okay. <laughs> Marvel's Iron is. Fist on Netflix. Yeah, uh, not as Iron <laughs> Fist, but in a major role. It seems. Yeah. Although I think he would have been good in the lead. Um, <laughs> so we're, we <laughs> we ended up going right into casting because yeah. you're you're sitting by Colin Farrell's signature, but. Um, mm-hmm. Oh, and you know, John Hodgman. I know John. See, this, we, a lot we, of good people signed here. We're here at the New York Studios, at Earwolf Studios. A lot of people right on the right on the board here. Um, the the thing we have to talk about, which I know you've covered it at length, but I feel like for fans, they they still want to hear it again. Just about the decision to to end the show, because unlike many shows that that end prematurely, this was a creative decision, and you knew going in, or you or you, at least you knew it, it by was close a, to the conclusion. Of it was it. a creative decision. In fairness. It's not the creative decision that I wanted to make. I would have loved to keep the show going. Um, it, it was a creative decision based on where I felt, you know, what we could, what I felt we could accomplish. Right. Um, I would have loved to have felt differently. I would have felt I would have loved to have felt that there there are two or three more seasons of story to tell here, and we're going to have the money to tell them well and the budget. And there was a combination of the pressures of making the same show every year as it got more and more expensive to make the show, and the fact that. You know, the Lucas Hood story was never built to last. I mean, right. that ruse of the fake sheriff, even in a town like Banshee at some point, doesn't work anymore. And um, at the end of season three, we very organically removed him from the office of sheriff. And I felt doing one more season with him not as the sheriff, but involved is is plausible. We could tell that story because it's kind of his way out. Yeah. 
Um, but if suddenly he you know, opens up shop as a private detective in Banshee or becomes a Little League coach or you know, anything else, now it's not the same show anymore. Now it's Archie Bunker's place. You know, it's, it's just a different show. I'd love to see the Little League team and just how many <laughs> fights there are uh, among the eight-year-olds of Banshee. But, yeah. you know, you, but it's interesting because you're talking about the balance between you know, the, the plausibility of the, the, the setup of the show. But as I was watching this fourth season, I realized that there was another um, balancing act that you uh, that you pulled off really remarkably, um, which is between sort of uh, pulp and genuine heart. Um, and I, I would imagine that that was a constant challenge to stay on that line. You know, we, we've talked before about how no matter how many times Hood was punched in the head, as far as we know, he never passed or failed a concussion test. He kept coming. But the emotional bruises became almost overwhelming leading up to this last season. I mean, the, the Siobhan murder plays an enormous role. It casts yeah. an enormous shadow over the season. So to keep that balance going, I, I wondered if that was also something that was threatening to tip at a certain point. Yeah, I, I think there are moments where we err on one side or the other. I, I think there are definitely moments over the seasons where I would have loved to have pulled something back a little bit or pushed something forward a little bit more. I, I'm not, I don't think we did it perfectly all the time. I just think we did it well enough that the the overall tableau is there. Um um, there was an expression that John Romano, one of the writers from our second season, introduced me to, and I don't remember the original source, but um, the concept is, you know, real frogs in an imaginary pond. Right. And the idea is we can make the pond as imaginary as we want as long as the frogs are real. And so, yeah, you know, he may not get killed when Chayton, you know, beats the crap out of him. And, you know, we may defy the laws of physics here and there. We may defy, you know, the laws of healing here and there. Yeah. And all, and, and we may also defy the laws, the statistical laws about how many people are going to walk into this town who want to kill somebody. <laughs> but as as long as the journey of the characters is is true and real and human, and the pain and the consequences are real, then people will invest in the characters. And once people invest in the characters, and, and also we have to kill characters, there have to be consequences because mm-hmm. otherwise there are no stakes. So if you know at any point that nobody's safe, like really, other than Lucas Hood, anyone could die. Um then the stakes are real and the emotional stakes are real and then there are people that you're invested in and that you really care about. And you also have to keep track of the motivation throughout too yeah. because um, you know it, it almost seems absurd to remember it now, but the reason that this character, this formerly nameless protagonist is there is because he was, being, after being released from prison, he wanted to be near the only thing that he knew he had in the world. He wanted right. to be near his his girlfriend and then the daughter he did, eventually the daughter he didn't realize he had. Right. Um, that has to power why he stays or why he goes. And right? that's the first question in the writer's room every season is why isn't he just getting the hell out of Dodge? Right. And that's always the first question we have to answer. And and it gradually it sort of it it drove the narrative. It's like, okay, he didn't get carried at the end of season one, so why is he staying in season two? And then it's about Deva. And then gradually what it came to be is the understanding, even among even among the writers and even with me who had, you know, basically been with him from inception. Mm-hmm. That he's got nowhere else to go. That actually he's never been anyone. Yeah, and and that's the revelation that that he comes to, and that we all came to, which is that he's been living a fake life for pretty much his entire adult life. Because I mean, he was in prison where he had no life, and then he was a fake, and so and, and his mutant power, such as it is, is to get into any place. He can go yeah. in, but he, who is he once he gets there? And and so the point is, you know, he didn't leave Banshee because where was he going to? He had nowhere to go. Right. And and so I think his journey you know, ultimately is to find himself and figure out whether or not he has a life to live beyond Banshee. I won't um, allude to anything that happens in the in the in Friday's finale, but it was interesting to me that what, what was set up or at least appeared to be set up as a 
you know, um, more traditional plot arc where he goes to this town and reclaims what was his, and you know that 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 basically the idea that Hood and Carrie would have a romantic happy ending, which you know, again, heading into the finale, that's very possible still. But four seasons in, that relationship has been much more complicated and layered and nuanced than I would have expected, and I wondered how much of that was intent and how much of that was just watching the story play out. The intent was always that there would be consequences, and at some point. There, we never really believed that Lucas and Carrie get to ride off into the sunset. She's done too much damage to her family. He's done too much damage to everyone around him and yeah. to her. If for them to, you know, to ride off into the sunset together is basically to do that on the ashes of Siobhan and Gordon and you know a handful of other people that people had, who they legitimately loved also. And yeah, who, who, that. who only through their death could they be together? And that, that doesn't work. I mean, that just doesn't work cosmically, karmically. It doesn't. It doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel right to the tone of our story. So the, the idea was always that there were going to be consequences. But then, you know, what it gradually became is we're not going to do this Rachel and Ross thing, will they or won't they? You know, we we got into it pretty quickly in season one. We came out of it in season two, and we never went back. And, right. Uh, and the reason was, like, who wants to see that? Who wants to see the back and forth and back and forth? What I wanted to see is they're still the two people, the only two people in town who know each other truly. So where's the friendship underneath that, and and when does that become basically the only thing that's keeping you sane without a without a love affair? It's very important, I think, that the show is about grownups, about adults. I mean, obviously, yeah. I wouldn't want children punching each other like this, but but also because time is this really inescapable weapon that you use in the show, and it comes up a lot in the fourth season, where um, you know Lucas has basically been up on a mountain in having re-imprisoned himself essentially, right. and then and Job is you know. Most he's screwed up in a, any number of ways, but the time that was taken from him, right. you know, that 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 is the sense of um, it, it's it's a very. I, I realize I'm making. I mean, we can go back to the 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 uh, the Unix and stuff later, but there's this emotional aspect of the show that I have always been quite drawn to, where they couldn't escape time, and time has really punished them in a way that they have to reckon with, and they can't dance around. And it's also, you know, that starts from the minute Lucas walks out of those gates because, you know, he lost 15 years of his life in right, prison, there it is, and yeah. he feels this tremendous urgency to start, like get it back as fast as possible because he's already halfway through his life and he's lost so much. And that urgency, it kind of propels him into really rash, impulsive decisions. He's just like, he's almost like a child lashing out saying, I need this now, I need this now. And and that kind of propels him is is that need to get it back and get it right as fast as you can because time's running out. Yeah. And it, and you know, you mentioned how you dealt with it in the second season. There's that episode that, that I've written about and many other people have written about that was just so visually beautiful that um, I'm blanking on the name. The Truth the, About Unicorns. Truth About Unicorns um, episode where you give them a taste, you give Lucas and Carrie a taste of their happy ending that they had planned and then quite literally burn it all down. And yeah. that had, that, that event had as, that has consequences in as much as anything else in the show has had consequences going forward. Yeah, I mean that was that was our moment to sort of take them out of Banshee for a minute and just really like tell the love story and and also kind of really underscore what they've lost and that they're not getting it back. Right. Um in this season in addition to the the changes that we're talking about in terms of of plot, there was also the change in setting because you moved production from North Carolina to right. to, to actually to Pennsylvania. That's it. Yeah. Um, no, nothing, you know, nothing passes for Pennsylvania like Pennsylvania. Like Pennsylvania, although right. it was really striking because Pennsylvania looks different in a way that I think actually suited the the, the tenor of the season. So I was wondering um, how 
How much did that drive some of the decision making to radically change the show as much as you did tonally? This is a, a you know, it's it, a slower season. It's a darker, more emotional season, and the yeah. color palette of Pennsylvania suited it in an interesting way. Um, you know, the move the move to Pennsylvania was an incredibly challenging, and it's not what you want to do uh, three seasons into a show. We had a lot of standing sets. We had a lot of built sets, um, and we had to cheat quite a bit. Um, you know, we had to re- we had to rebuild the forge from scratch because the forge had not been a set that was built to travel. Yeah. So that was literally rebuilt from blueprints from scratch. Um, the only set we really moved was um, Proctor's Strip Club and Office. That's the only set that actually that we traveled. We couldn't. The the caddy was an actual building. We couldn't move that. You know, there was a lot we couldn't move, and that really fed the idea which I'd initially had, I'd always had this notion for season five that we would jump ahead in time. Mm-hmm. Um, so once we knew we had to move to Pittsburgh, we decided that's how we, that's how we smooth it over is we'll jump ahead in time. There's a new police station there. You know, it, it would excuse a lot of the, the new geography. Um, and at the same time moving to, you know, we could never do big shots of the town in Charlotte because it doesn't look like Pennsylvania. Yeah. Um, the easiest thing about shooting in uh, Pittsburgh was that anywhere you pointed the camera looked like Pennsylvania. We did a lot of shooting in in North Carolina where you could only shoot in one direction. If you shot the other way, it's not Pennsylvania, <laughs> and you know that freed us up a lot. And it, it let us it freed us up to use helicopters. There are, we have helicopter shots in season four that didn't exist in our first three seasons. We've got you know helicopter shots of Lucas's car going over hills, and you know these beautiful shots of the town of the of the rivers of you know. All the stuff like it gives it scope we couldn't do in the first three seasons. Well, you sh- you shot the season in summer. I'm not. Did you shoot all the every season essentially? Yeah, in we summer? always shot in summer. And, and the it thing never it, snows in Banshee. But the thing that I like about that is summer in Pennsylvania is different than summer in North Carolina because yeah. summer in Pennsylvania, and I say this as someone who grew up in Pennsylvania, it's it, it's very lush. Like the the foliage where you were is very lush, but it also it feels like intensely fake. It's like a monochromatic lushness, like it's about to be taken away. Maybe this is my own East Coast psychology. It might be. But there was a grimness to it, like underneath all that lushness that I thought really suited the darker tone. Maybe, but we, you know, we also pick our locations pretty, you know, pretty carefully you based on that. Yeah. But you know, what was tough about it was we were scouting in, in March. We were looking at houses and looking at places we were going to shoot, but we always had somebody there to advise us, well, just know that you're not going to be able to shoot from there in two months because there's going to be leaves everywhere and you're not going to see through the trees. And, you know, we have those issues. But I think I would imagine that one of the the advantages of moving locations three years into the run is suddenly you have a whole new pool of muscular bearded extras to call on. Because I don't know how you crowdsource this these this number of sheer number of goons. Yeah, but you have a lot of goons in crowd scenes. There, there's a sh- shocking amount of people across America who just want to fall down on television. <laughs> it just you, you can find them everywhere. Yeah, you could just go out on Eighth Avenue yeah, right now. You know, the stunt them. guys one day did a. I forgot it. They just did an open casting call for stunt guys in our production offices one Sunday in Pittsburgh, and. And it went all day. We had people there jumping, flipping, doing flying, like just that many stunned people in Pittsburgh, you know, who wanted to get onto TV. Who knew? How many of them drove all night from New York and how many yeah, of them were I just I, deep, I, I honestly don't know. deep Pittsburgh uh, summer stock actors? Uh, we're going to pause quickly for a word from our sponsors and get back into the interview with Jonathan Tropper. 
Jonathan, I'm sure you know, the problem with wearing a rental tuxedo to the award shows that you might get nominated for, you know, when you're, when you're ready to accept your, your Emmy or Cable Ace Award for Banshee, the problem is that it looks like a rental tuxedo, and everybody around you knows it. And all, they're all, that's all they're thinking. That's all they're thinking. They, I mean, they're all big Banshee fans, and they're like, they couldn't even afford to, to get this guy in a nice tuxedo. So what if, I'm just going to throw this out there, what if there was a way to get quality-crafted Italian wool suits and tuxedos rented to you online? Not by some guy at the strip mall, online! The Black Tux was created for guys like you, Jonathan Tropper. Andy, I think the world would beat a path to your door. See, this is what I'm saying, and I'm about to blow your mind. Because the Black Tux exists. It's for people who deserve quality-crafted Italian threads along with a knowledgeable customer service core. The best part is it's hassle-free. It's online. Okay, so what is it? I'm going to tell you. Okay, go to blacktux, theblacktux.com, theblacktux.com. You can select from complete looks, or why not build your own? Prices start at 95 bucks. Black Tux designs and manufactures quality-crafted Italian wood suits and tuxedos for rent. Did I mention that it's entirely online? There's top-notch customer service to help you with fitting. Your suit will arrive seven days before your event, so you have plenty of time to try it on if it needs a tweak. TheBlackTux.com will do whatever it takes to have it fit on time. Whatever it takes. Um, and when your event's over, you just ship your tux back in the box it came from for free. It's that easy. So what you have to do is this. Visit TheBlackTux.com slash BSPN and experience a new way to rent. That's TheBlackTux.com BSPN. So I guess the, the challenge of creating a last season of a television show is twofold. One is... You want to make a, a season of television that stands on its own and you bring in new plot points and new excitement and changes. Um, but you also need to resolve a lot of things, or you don't need to, but people expect that you're going to resolve some things in a, in a satisfying way or in a way that feels consistent with the show that came before. How did you approach that two-track that two track uh, 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 mission? I don't, I don't think we really thought about it like that. We wanted, um, <clears throat> we knew there was going to be an emotional uh, core to the season that hadn't been there in previous seasons because we knew going in it was going to be our last season. Like, So we had a very clear path. It wasn't like after episode five we had to decide, oh, now we're going to end the show. We, we had a very clear path for the characters through all eight, but we set out to really do what we do every season, which is to just, you know, take them on an adventure and, and tell a really compelling story and, and create a series of subplots that interconnect and intertwine and you know, which is, I think, a specialty of our show in every season. It's like there isn't the Proctor plot and the Nazi plot and the Native American plot. Like, they're all interconnected, and, you know, that's what we really enjoyed doing. And so we just did it again, except, you know, we knew as we got to the end, though, there would be a finality to things. And Well, you, you've, you've stacked up terrible things like Jenga tiles on this hellmouth of a town. I mean, we, you, you referenced some of them from, you know, from Proctor's drug running to the, um, the neo-Nazis to, the, to, to Chayton's um, separatist uh, gang. Um, this season we had a serial killer. I'm wondering, was there a whiteboard where you threw around other potential terrible things to have in Banshee, like a toxic waste dump or poor cell phone reception? Like, what, wh- why did serial killer win versus all the other um, potential things you could yeah, throw Yeah, you know, and, and we've taken some flack for the serial killer plot line. And, you know, in retrospect, I didn't really, I wasn't thinking of a serial killer as something that's been done so much that you have to sort of, you know, follow rules or or do it a certain way or or not do it a certain way and and... You know, if I thought about that, may, <clears throat> excuse me, maybe I'd have thought of it differently. Um, what I set out to do was just, like, I wanted to find another piece of the Bantry subculture we hadn't seen before. Right. And, you know, the road we went down, I had seen this this clip on CNN of this guy who was being sentenced to life in prison for murder. And he had these, uh, these bumps uh, implanted into his head, like these devil horns implanted into his head. And it took me down this whole 
you know, body mod um, rabbit hole. And I thought, you know, oh, the body mods and 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 the Satanists, which are you know, are not the same, but there is often overlap. Yeah. Um, you know, that would be interesting if if there was a piece of that going on on the outskirts of Banshee, and you know, we could get into that. And if one of those guys was was killing girls, because I I needed, I needed, you know, what what we did need is we needed Brock to have his hands full. Brock finally got the gig, and he's like, wow, I'm finally the sheriff, and now they're killing girls right and left, and I can't seem to stop them. Mm-hmm. Um, so we wanted that, and we we wanted Brock to really be stressed to the limit. We wanted, um, you know, we knew we were going to kill Rebecca at the beginning, and and we needed that to unfold and take us into a whole new investigation and a new subculture. And we we wanted something really dark. We really wanted, you know, to make the season dark and and more brooding and and more dreary and more uh, suspenseful. So it just seemed like a great way to go and. You know, the fact that it's a serial killer, you know, because that's such a, I guess serial killer itself is such a trope and a buzzword. You know, if I had thought about that, I might have made it something slightly like that we didn't define as a serial killer. That's just, um, you know, some pissed off body mod guy who got into some stuff. And, and uh, you know, and then, and then you know, in, in truth, the execution of it wasn't exactly how I had envisioned it. But, um, you know, the idea was just to just you know, get into another layer of Banshee. There's um, always more underneath the yeah, and, and surface I, and, of this town. Yeah, and, and I think the, the concept that just a regular Joe and his wife living in uh, on the outskirts of Banshee, you know, in his John Deere hat and his T-shirt actually uh, are body mods who are, are killing girls for Satan. Well, we were, we were joking at the beginning that, you know, what does the town optometrist look like? But actually, yeah. the town plastic surgeon, I mean, we, you're actually suggesting that there's a reason why these quote-unquote ordinary people live here because with so much other stuff going on. Yeah. They're fine. They're welcome there. It's a totally uh, reasonable way to exist. But I've never felt that this season was about a serial killer. If you actually look at the amount of screen time, you know, that that Declan Bodie's on the screen, it's not very much. It's really just about all of our characters being sort of having their deck, having the deck of characters reshuffled because someone's killed these girls. Um, But it was not to make the season about let's catch a serial killer. And, And I think as you watch the whole season... That's really not what the season's about. Did you feel compressed in any way? I mean, it, it, I know you were saying how tough it is to do a lot in 10. This was eight. Um, yeah, I think I think we would have, uh, there was more stuff we wanted to do for sure, but, you know, not not with our central characters. Like, we knew, we, we knew pretty early on what everyone's arc was, how we wanted to see it end, you know, who was going to live, who was going to die, what, what, what the, where we were going to leave everybody when the show ended. And, and it was just about, you know, not being able to necessarily take all the detours we would have liked to take before we ended. I, again, we, we will do nothing to spoil the finale, but I, I will say, and, and I'm curious if you'd comment on it, again, without spoiling anything, that when we've spoken about the show in the past, you have suggested that the there really was only one way for a show like this to end because there was an, you were playing with a sort of archetype character, the man with no name comes into a town. Um, do you feel, Do you, well, two questions then. Do you feel like you... you you finished the arc of this character in the way that was satisfying to you? Is it what you would imagine from the beginning? Yeah, it's not exactly. Um, I had a different vision when we first started the show, but once um, once the character had really taken hold, the real character, not the character that had existed in my mind, but the character that it became through Anne's performance and through the writing of season one, mm-hmm. um, I kind of understood by the end of season one you know where his ultimate journey had to take him, and, and what what where he where he ended up. 
do you feel satisfied and done with this world? Um, or do you feel that this this town, you know, which is, as you said, a hellmouth, has more stories in it that might be interesting to you to return to someday? Well, I, I think uh, I think the town has an infinite um, amount of stories. Whenever you create a show, you need that engine. You need the thing that can generate story. Mm-hmm. Um, and this town has that. Um, I think it would be a great engine. I just don't think it would be for me anymore. I think you reach a point where you want to kind of write in another world and you want to write different things. And, and you know, at some point, you know, 38 episodes uh, of a show that I really, you know, I had my hand on every script, at some point, it's exhausting. And, and you kind of want to, you know, write in a different tone and write different kinds of characters and, and not be beholden to all the rules you built. Right. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sad to have the show off the air. I'm sad to say goodbye to a great group of people and, you know, to a great adventure. And, you know, and honestly, you know, who the hell knows when I'll get another one on. But uh, at the same time, I, I think, you know, part of that part of that creative decision to end it was also a personal one that I, I felt that I was, I had kind of given it my best in this world. I love the idea, though, of a show existing in one form and, and, and running its course, but then almost as if a show that wasn't designed to be an anthology show could become one where someone else could step in and tell their version of a crime story in Banshee. I mean, things. I don't think the world is set up to allow that sort of thing, but, yeah. you know, I, I, I still dream of a world where you could do like a, a Chinese fire drill with medical shows and procedurals and cable prestige shows and, you know, yeah. and, see, and see how it would shake out. Yeah, well, it wouldn't be a bad thing if, if somebody came in and, and Cinemax... Uh, you know, got Matt Servito and Tom Pelfrey back, so you had the police station, and then you brought in some additional characters and started the uh, the whole thing again. But uh, you know, it just you're right. People move on, actors move on, and and uh, networks move on. So well, so we we've touched on this a little bit in the in past interviews, but um, you know, when I when I one of the things that really drew me to Banshee in the beginning was I was so struck by the fact that this was a show that was very, very pulpy and drew on, on on genre fiction that I really, really loved, but it was coming from two more quote-unquote literary fiction writers who had created it, you and David Schickler, that I I loved for, I loved the kind of writing that you did, and I was very excited to see you playing in this sandbox. And so at the time I asked you if it was, um, if there was any sort of learning curve in terms of convincing the industry that, oh no, you, you, you really love Die Hard, you really love, you know, uh, dime store novels, you, you could do this. And then the question for today, now that the show is ending, is have you had to do the opposite now? Have you said, well, no, I'd like to do something that is less dependent on rocket launchers? Um, I haven't had that problem yet. Um, I'm hoping I won't. Um, in, the, in, the, in the four years I was doing the show, you know, I also, you know, I did the movie of This Is Where I Leave You. And right. I've, I've written a number of other screenplays and, and you know, some of which are, are creeping towards production now and... and uh, I did some work, you know. I did some work on vinyl, and and I did some work on, you know, some new shows for for Cinemax. And so, I, I think I've kept my finger enough in in different ponds that that no one's going to sit there if I, you know, come in to you know to pitch a love story and say, well, you know, where's the explosion? Right. Although there was a love yeah. story in Banshee, there just yeah. was also. Look, I think Banshee is the ultimate dysfunctional family show. I mean, <laughs> I think that's what it is, really. You have to come in thinking that, right? I mean, you yeah. can't. I, I don't know if there's anyone. Yeah, I mean, the, the, if you get a room of writers together to write Banshee, you're not hiring people who are like, well, I, I have a, a lot of strong opinions about handguns and brass knuckles. Right, and we're, and we're not a procedural. Like, you know, if you, you know, I, I'm always amazed when every once in a while on Twitter, 
some some cop or law enforcement guy will tweet, you know, when are you guys going to get it right? Hire a consultant. <laughs> and like, so I want to say, first of all, we do hire consultants when when we feel we need to. Yeah. But the fact is, we're not interested in being a procedural. We're not interested in showing you how we follow forensic leads. Like, it's only in service of the characters, and nobody. Nobody who watches our show wants to see, you know, Lucas get into facial recognition software. No, there's a know? whole there's a whole genre of 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 literature that I that I love that is ostensibly the mystery books or thriller mm-hmm. books. But I don't know if you like a, a writer like James Crumley. I don't know if you ever read him, but I'm like, not. I, I could not tell you a single thing that happens in his books. I don't understand the plot. I don't mm-hmm. care because it's a world that you just want to spend time in, and it's so weird or unsettling or violent or sexual or whatever, and. That there's a case to be made for that, especially on TV. When you know you don't, if you want to see things done by the book, there are reality shows or procedurals. Yeah, and shows if you want, if you want to see the procedurals, you can watch CBS every night of the week. Yeah, you know, but you know, I don't think you're going to see anybody tear someone's throat out on CBS. So okay. you know, are, are there FBI agents like Eliza's character this season? Maybe we don't know, but it's much more interesting to have a character like hers yeah. with a crack pipe and her and her. Uh, yeah. We're her only interested case. on this show in, in seeing the world through our prism and. You know, if you're going to apply, you know, the prism of procedurals or, honestly, if you're going to apply the prism of reality to our show, you're not going to have a very good time. So the TV world has is changing so quickly that I think it's fair to say that it's changed even during the years that you've been in production on Banshee. Oh, my. And, yeah, it's it, changed it, a tremendous amount. And you've alluded to the fact that you're working on some other projects. If, you, if, you, if it's okay to name some of them, I'd love for you to do that. But I, I'm just curious also how you... How how are you re-entering the landscape of pitching and development, and and what opportunities do you see in the changes that have come since uh, you got I, this one through? I haven't had to re-enter it too hard because I'm I'm in an overall deal at HBO, so I kind of have my home base. Mm-hmm. I can't go sell to Netflix and Amazon and FX as much as as sometimes it would be really exciting to do that. And you know, and they've all <clears throat> excuse me, they've all had projects come up that I've kind of been, oh, I wish I was free to go pursue that. But, you know, I'm I'm actually being pretty well compensated to develop at HBO and Cinemax. So, you know, right now I have a show. I've written a pilot for Cinemax that I, I believe is going to go to series that's called Warrior, um, which I'm doing with Justin Lin and with the Bruce Lee estate. Mm-hmm. And it's a show that takes place in 1870s Chinatown, San Francisco. So it's both a period piece and, you know, a bit of our, our history. And at the same time, it's got... Uh, at its center, a, a very serious martial artist. Um, I don't know the best way to, to the best way to describe the show is it's it's kind of gangs of New York in Chinatown, San Francisco, eighteen seventies. I'm in, and uh, yeah, I think I think it's a lot of fun. The pilot was a lot of fun to write. It's the first thing I had to write that required really a significant amount of research. Um, and because uh, Banshee was mostly called from your own yeah, life, yeah, the Banshee we just made. It. Well, no, but you could make it up, <laughs> right? Of course, you know. And and uh, this, you know, I mean, eighteen seventies Chinatown was not a great time. Eighteen uh, seventies was a terrible time to be Chinese in America, and there's really not a great amount of historical resources on our side for that time because I guess, you know, it's not something that people were very proud of in retrospect, but you know. There, there was a lot going on there. It was the, you know, the end of the building of the railroad. The railroad was basically like the building of the uh, of the intercontinent of the transcontinental railroad. Sorry, was essentially the same as the internet. It changed the economy all over America. And the the Chinese who actually were brought in to build that railroad uh, to be the labor behind that uh, ended up becoming the scapegoats for the uh, disastrous economy that followed. And I don't know, they were just treated horribly. And there were pogroms and there were riots and and then within Chinatown, you had these gangs that rose up, the Tongs. And, and so the show Warrior is really about the Tong Wars between mm-hmm. all these Chinese factions fighting for control of Chinatown. 
That sounds really exciting. It also, you know, speaks to the, what TV series can do. I mean, the the best ones are load bearing mechanisms that can you can put all of you know history, culture, class, today's issues, yesterday's issues, all into it. Plus, if you can put jump kicks in too, you're off yeah, to a yeah, start. If you get somebody who can move like Bruce Lee while you're at it, yeah. You know? So you've, you've set the bar low for yourself on that <laughs> one. Um, that's very exciting. Um, we should also. I, I did want to just go back a couple things on Banshee now that it is it is over. Um, do you have a favorite fight scene from the series of, or, or a favorite sequence? It doesn't have to be specifically a fist fight, but just one thing that you look back and you're like, oh, we, we nailed that one. Um, I'm, I'm incredibly critical of, of what we do. That's, I know That's it, my job. I, I know most people's, uh, most people's favorite fight scene is uh, Nola and Burton. Yeah. And, and I think that was a thing of beauty. It's completely not what I was going for when, when I envisioned the fight. But What were you, you know, going for? I, I thought it would be. I just didn't want to do a real kung fu fight between them, and and an overly choreographed fight. I wanted it to be a really savage, brutal, uh, you know, balls to the wall naturalist fight. Right. Um, and uh, you know, they the stunt team got inspired and took it in a direction. And in the end, I, I was just really honestly shouted down by everyone else <laughs> who loved it, and so. Yeah. I sat back, and then when it was done, like I thought it was a thing of beauty. It was not what I would have done, but that's why the, it's a, TV is a collaborative yeah, medium. But those two characters, like they deserved that medium to do it in. Yeah. So, so I think I was wrong. Um, I don't, you know, and so I think that that ended up being, I think, probably one of our uh, our most famous, probably our most famous fight. Mm-hmm. Um, the the sequence I really loved just because it came off so close to how it was written and, and it really works and it's sort of both, you know, violent and gritty and absurd all at the same time. Oh, I, is, hope, I hope we're going to say the same one. Is uh, Well, I don't know because it's not a fight really, okay. but it's when Chayton and his guys take down the military convoy. Oh, that's, And then yeah. Lucas and Brock show up, just Chayton taking on the Marines with a bow and arrow. I just thought that whole thing was so iconic and mythical and, and really defined Chayton and and then, of course, you know, connected to that, which is probably what you're thinking is, is the Siege episode and the Caddy, which I thought was just brilliant from beginning to end. I think the Siege episode it might be the most incredible, sustained thing that the show accomplished. But I think my yeah. favorite is the uh, when when um, when Lucas is, ends up tied up on the, the the flatbed truck of the fat gangster, <laughs> because that was the moment where I was like, yeah. this show is so beautifully committed to, abs- to the absurdity yeah. of this at times, you know, and then, and, it, and again, the, the heart's there and the blood is certainly there too, but the balance is necessary. And I loved that it. it was just insane. It but, was but an I'll, insane moment. I'll tell you, I spent, you know, Adam Adam Targum wrote uh, episode five, the, the Siege on the Caddy, mm-hmm. and uh, OC directed it. And I spent a lot of time on the script with Adam. Uh, you know, I really, we worked it and we, we worked it, but at some point I checked out and Adam had to do all the, you know, he, he had to carry the lion's share of that into production and OC had to shoot it and it was an impossible shooting schedule. And for whatever reason, I don't remember what I was doing, but I was not there for the entire production of that episode. And, you know, those two guys kind of worked, I think pretty much around the clock for 10 days to make that episode happen. Um, and it just turned out to be like, pretty much I think a perfect episode yeah I, it was just very impressive and uh, everything that you like everything that, that one liked about Banshee was in that hour yeah no it was it was really a, a great hour but so I've had some experience over the last few years um, I moderated two panels for you guys at various comic cons yes, you're a very good moderator I recommend anyone thank who's you. listening who needs a moderator at comic con thank Andy's you your guy that's my that's my spot well the thing yeah. about comic con panels is that it's the friendliest room you could ever be in yes. front of. It's it's. I, I, I was nervous about the first one that I realized everyone here loves everything that's happening on the stage and I, it's just I just have to conduct it. I have to do nothing. Right. Um, but 
the one thing that I got from that experience more than anything else was the level of obsession and devotion that this show has engendered among a surprisingly diverse, and I don't even mean just like in terms of appearance or race, I mean in terms of background and profession and oh, age yeah. of this fan base. So the question is for you, person who created it and who ended it, do you think the fans are going to let this go? Are they okay? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, you're intense. Fans are intense while it's going on, and then they move on. There, there's way too much TV being made right now, and, <laughs> and they will, uh, they'll find something else if they haven't already. And But, yeah, the diversity is huge. I mean, because, you know, I'll sometimes go do book readings and, and book talks, and, and my book talk audience is like the opposite of a Comic-Con audience. It's generally you know, middle-aged and older, and it's a lot of women. And, and you know, at every book talk I've done since Banshee hit the air, there'll be some kind of, you know, 60-year-old woman towards the back who raises her hand and asks me, you know, when's Banshee coming back? Yeah. And, and it just, that, that's been really gratifying that it sort of crossed all those lines. Look, you know, I, one should probably, it's probably a bad idea for, for a person ever to bring up their boss's mother, but um, one of the first things that, that Bill Simmons' mother ever said to me was... Let's talk about Bill Simmons' mother. She loves Banshee. That's well, what I was going to say. She said, I love the show. A woman of breeding and taste. That's what I'm saying. She <laughs> loves Banshee and wanted to talk to me about it when I was writing about it. So that's, that's a surprising demo outreach that you were able to accomplish. I, I think anytime you do something that you're fully committed to, like you can't, you can't, I remember when I learned to water ski that the biggest lesson when you're water skiing is you can't sneak into the wake. You have to point both skis and charge into the wake. And I think anytime you do any kind of, you know, show like this and any anything that's going to kind of push the envelope, you can't kind of tentatively push the envelope. You have to push it as hard as you can and... You know, I think Greg used an expression, Greg Yatain is who really, you know, helped build the show with us. Um, Greg said he would rather fail spectacularly than not try. And so we, you know, we just aimed at failing spectacularly, and luckily huh, we didn't. I think that's a good motto for most creative enterprises. Yeah. Um, so we're going to put this up, conversation up, before the finale ends on, on before the finale airs on, right. uh, on, fr- on Friday, May 20th. Mm-hmm. Um, any words that you would give to people who are going to be listening to this podcast and then being very excited for the finale to prepare them, to preview them on what it no, is? No, I, I think the finale is another episode that that we worked really hard uh, uh, to give everything a Banshee episode should give. And at the same time, I think there, there's a really strong, you know, emotional resolution in it. And, you know, there, there's some surprises along the way. And um I know I, I got very emotional writing it. Like even when I finished writing the last page, I got emotional. I got emotional shooting it. I got emotional cutting it. And, and you know, it's really, it's a farewell. The episode is a strong farewell. And, and I think, you know, fans of the show should sort of sit back and, you know, and everyone likes to live tweet the show. I can't do it. I just need to watch it and, and sort of revel in it and, and let the feelings come because there's, there's a lot of emotion in this episode. What's Lucas Hood's real name? Gary. Do you like the way I did that? I knew you would tell me at the end of it. It's beautiful. Gary. Yeah. What's his last name? Schwartz. I knew he was one of us. <laughs> that was why I always liked the show. Good to know. You know what's going to happen? That's going to actually get out there as like his real name. That's like, okay. Like that's 20 minutes happens. ago, I said that he yeah. had a mutant power. So people are probably thinking right. they're somehow tied into the X-Men universe. So yes. this is good. You want to leave with a little bit of misinformation to keep people sure. talking. That's, you don't need to give it. I find it gets there whether you give it or not. That's just, use me. I'm just a yeah. dissembler. That's what this podcast is for. Um, Jonathan, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Congratulations. Thanks, Andy. On the end of Thanks the show. I'm gonna Thank miss, you. I'm going to miss the show a lot. I'm going to miss it, too. we got to get another one on quick so we can keep doing this. Keep doing talking to me about yeah. it. Yeah. Perfect. Absolutely. <laughs> Thanks, Jonathan. 
Hey guys, remember the problem with wearing a rental tuxedo is that it looks like a rental tuxedo. Everybody knows it. They're watching you. They're judging you. The Black Tux is changing that by offering quality crafted Italian wool suits and tuxedos for rent online. Select from complete looks, build your own starting at just 95 bucks. To get started, visit theblacktux.com slash BSPN and experience a new way to rent. That's theblacktux.com slash BSPN.